Welcome to Oncology Republic Podcast. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me. Like life, death can be complex, but it's probably fair to say that oncology has maybe a greater familiarity with end-of-life processes than many other professions. This month, voluntary assisted dying will become a lawful choice across all Australian jurisdictions, but as you would appreciate, there are many complexities that doctors wrangle with. You might have already had an emotional reaction when you saw what this episode was about, so I'm holding the topic carefully and unpacking it in a two-part special series. Over these episodes, I'm asking our guests about legal protection for doctors, conscientious objection, support resources, ethical dilemmas, indication creep, access, and patient-centred care. Next episode, we'll be speaking with two doctors, big city medical oncologist and a regional GP, both of whom assist patients at end of life to access voluntary assisted dying. However, for today, we're having a chat with Casey Haining, Research Fellow at the Australian Centre for Health Law Research at Queensland University of Technology. Now, late last year, Casey Haining wrote an article for the Medical Journal of Australia on voluntary assisted dying laws. She said a few things would be changing at the beginning of 2023, which is now. So let's hear what the latest is. Thanks so much for joining us, Casey Haining. Thank you, Wendy. Thanks for having me. What's the current legal status for Australia regarding voluntary assisted dying? So voluntary assisted dying has been passed in each of the state. Laws have been passed in each of the state. However, it's currently only operational in Victoria, Western Australia, Tasmania, Queensland. It will lawful in South Australia at the end of this month in January and in November in for New South Wales. The territories are looking at this as an issue and whether they want to introduce it. They had previously been precluded from doing so as a result of a Commonwealth law preventing them from passing laws. What are some of the legal concerns that doctors have around voluntary assisted dying or VAD? So there is a few kind of legal concerns. One, I guess, that's particularly prominent is breaching the Commonwealth Criminal Code and talking about voluntary assisted dying through a carriage service and to what extent voluntary assisted dying can be taught by telehealth. And because of this Commonwealth law preventing that, there is a little bit of hesitation around talking or conducting aspects of the voluntary assisted dying process via telehealth. That's still something that's a little bit uh, grey area? It is a grey area in terms of the interpretation. So different states have interpreted it quite differently. So, for instance, Victoria guidance is don't do any part of the process about voluntary assisted dying via telehealth. Others have taken a different slant. So, for instance, in Western Australia, particular assessments can be done, but you can't discuss anything related to administration or anything like that via a carriage service. Jurisdictions have some nuances and different interpretations, different evidence criteria, but Queensland University of Technology have a great end-of-life law website resource for doctors and practitioners. Could you tell us a little bit about that website and how a doctor might use it? Yes, certainly. The end-of-life website that you're referring to was developed by some of my colleagues at the Australian Centre for Health Law Research at Queensland University of Technology and basically that provides an overview of different aspects of end of life law. It's a freely available resource and it does provide jurisdiction specific um, 
information under those relevant headings. So it covers things such as voluntary assisted dying, but also consent, treatment decisions, advanced care planning, etc. And also there is these end-of-life law for clinician modules, which have been developed as well. And do those modules then lead to the certification or are there the, the free online training modules that are on the website? Are they for doctors who are perhaps just wanting to find out a little bit more or actually doctors who have made the decision and want to get accredited to provide VAD? Yeah, so there's two different types of training. So the ones that I was referring to are kind of a general training for those who are interested to increase their end-of-life law knowledge. But in terms of voluntary assisted dying, there is legislatively mandated training that practitioners need to undergo in order to provide that. And that is that is provided by the individual states' governments. So Department of Health in each state? That's correct. There are some concerns that relate to many aspects of voluntary assisted dying, but with regard to the risk of doctors being accused of coercion, what protections are in place for doctors in that space? Yeah, so there is different takes on different laws. So, for instance, in Victoria, you can't raise voluntary assisted dying with the patient. The patient has to raise that first. In other jurisdictions, there's a slightly different take where a medical practitioner can actually raise voluntary assisted dying with the patient, but that needs to be in context with other end-of-life options. Um, if but, it's a part uh, of the conversation that they're having with the patient anyway. Yes, that's correct. In terms of it's a suite of end-of-life choices and VAD is really all voluntary assisted dying. VAD for short is just one of those end-of-life options. If a doctor has a conscientious objection to voluntary assisted dying, what obligations do they have to the patient if a patient raises that, that conversation? Yeah, so again, different jurisdictional variations. So I guess something to kind of frame the conversation is that what is unique to each of the individual laws is that they do protect people who may have a conscientious objection to voluntary assisted dying, that they don't have to actually take part in this process if they're not comfortable in doing so. Again, different states have taken a different slant on this. Some states will require the practitioners to provide some approved information to the patient so they can access help elsewhere. Typically, we'll have a list of information about voluntary assisted dying, but also we'll point them towards a care navigator service, which can then point the patients, provide those patients connections to doctors if that is the case or some more information about that process. Other jurisdictions don't have that um, requirement, but some practitioners will certainly, if they feel comfortable from doing so, point them in the direction of, of that service. And once again, all of the information regarding, relating to what is a doctor's conscientious objection obligation by jurisdiction is on that QUT website that we referred to before, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's there's active referral, there's, there's passive referral. You could delay a referral. Yeah, so certainly in terms of the jurisdictions, again, varies across states. Sometimes that might have to be immediately notified. Sometimes it's within a short period of time. Again, Legal obligations vary and certainly in some states, health practitioners aren't under an obligation to provide information even. So again, 
there is that jurisdictional variation. But even in absence of the explicit legal obligations, practitioners who identify as a conscientious objector might feel as though that they still want to do that referral process or still assist the patient, even though they don't want to go on that bad journey necessarily with that patient. In conversations I've had with doctors, some have said that they believe in the patient's choice around this, but personally can't feel comfortable with being involved in the process. But if they're an active referrer, that might enable the patient to get what they have chosen without the doctor themselves really being involved in the process. That's right. And I think in terms of conscientious objection, it's very personal things. So there's a spectrum of conscientious objection in terms of their degree of comfortableness um, in participation and whether that is from referring or simply providing information to an external service such as care navigators, etc. Does every state have a navigator service that's set up to support doctors and patients and and family members in this process? Yeah, so there's kind of broad, again, there's jurisdictional, but generally the states will have this kind of navigation service. It's a product of implementation. So in terms of that period between when the law is passing to when it's being implemented. So the finer details of how that service works out is during that implementation period before the law commences. But generally, the states have this kind of broad navigation service. Typically, that service is kind of an all-encompassing service to provide patients, families, health practitioners, health services with information about voluntary assisted dying, connecting patients to practitioners who are involved in this process and certainly from the research that our team has done in Victoria and Western Australia is that um, patients, families and health practitioners and other regulators can't speak highly enough of that service and helping patients and health practitioners navigate this space. Could you tell us a bit about the training that doctors undertake and once again talking broadly each jurisdiction has its own approach but QUT was very much involved in developing the training for some states. Can you tell us a bit about what the training looks like? Yeah, sure. There was tenders put out by the state governments and QUT was successful in the tenders in Victoria, Western Australia and Queensland. And my colleagues at the Australian Centre for Health Research were heavily involved in that process. And it's a kind of a multidisciplinary approach. A lot of us are lawyers, but also representation from the health profession, whether it's allied health professionals, nurses, medical practitioners. So really a multidisciplinary approach and certainly that is done in consultation with the various departments of health. And broadly, it is to basically train people who might want to be involved in this process, the health practitioners involved, so whether that is the medical practitioners or nurses or nurse practitioners, but really trying to educate them about their legal requirement under the Act, what they have to do. There is also some kind of broad brush clinical skills embedded within that training, but really about making sure that health practitioners are confident with their legal obligations that they can carry out this process. And that is really reflective of a safe because at the end of the day, it is really contingent upon the medical practitioners involved in this process to assess the person as eligible. So we need to be really confident that they understand the law and their obligations under it. So it went into consultation with the Department of Health, also went back to stakeholders, um, 
again, multidisciplinary approach to get feedback. So it was a long process and the team at QT and everyone involved worked really, really hard to incorporate the feedback and really trying to generate that balance between having a training that is robust, that we can be confident that the people who are undertaking this process are aware of their legal obligations, but also making it feasible within a busy health practitioner's schedule. So it's an online module. What's the duration generally? Yeah, so generally around about six hours, six to eight hours, it will vary. Practitioners do have multiple attempts. Certainly it's an online module and it's a self-paced, so practitioners can kind of go in and out and then at the completion of the the practitioners need to complete an assessment and only on a successful passing of that will they go through that process of becoming accredited. What about ongoing support for doctors? It it is a hard job. Yeah, so there is different types of support mechanisms. So something I should say is that in addition to covering all the legal obligations, there is self-care modules incorporated in that training as well, acknowledging the gravity of this work, as you pointed out. But also there has been kind of ways to incentivize training. So some of the states have tried to kind of encourage kind of in-person training where they might run particular days where multiple people, practitioners who want to do the training will do it kind of in person and so you've kind of got that kind of supportive environment rather than kind of sitting at home and and doing these modules in isolation there has been various types of mechanisms so for instance in western australia particularly around regional practitioners there has been reimbursement for time for those practitioners given the importance of having that representation there. But I guess, yes, individual health services have also done their individual training where they might try and facilitate those environments where practitioners might do in-person, um, that training in person, because that, it, that does help. And it does encourage people when you're all in it together, confidence and, and also that collegial support. I mean, as you can imagine, particularly people who are participating in this, it's not necessarily something that's well as Is it the Department of Health that has been running those or is it the colleges in the different jurisdictions? The Department of Health, so for instance, Victoria certainly did some of the sessions that helped encourage those. Western Australia has done a lot of roadshows to kind of build awareness, etc. But also sometimes individual health services as well. There has been different types of awareness raising mechanisms, so webinars, so for for instance, the RSCGP certainly has had some webinars on VAD and talking about and having kind of panel sessions with general practitioners, for instance, to kind of reflect on the experience. And then for some of them to hear from a general practitioner what it's really like, that can help people make up their minds who might otherwise be ambivalent as to whether they want to go down this journey. But I think, as you said, Collegial support is really important and certainly from practitioners who have been involved in this process, when they become a VAD practitioner, they talk about the importance of kind of these community of practices, which some switch states have set up, but also kind of these informal community of practices where they might have their informal and just to kind of debrief and talk about particular cases and as a kind of getting that collegial support. Mm, Yeah, that is incredibly important. Some other concerns relate to indication creep. Could you talk a little bit about that and what precedents there are on how to mitigate it? 
I think especially when this voluntary assisted dying was being debated and bills were being introduced, some of the reservations is around this kind of bracket creep or this slippery slope where obviously the laws start with a really strict eligibility criteria and subsequently broaden. So we start with the terminally ill rules, people who might have just had enough of life and not necessarily had a terminal illness. And I guess that concern can only really tested with the extent of time, but there's certainly evidence to suggest that the slippery slope is fallacious to some extent, that that concerns hasn't necessarily been born in practice. But again, we're really early in the Australian experience, so we'll have to wait and see. But certainly I don't see the eligibility criteria broadening anytime soon. And even I think practitioners involved in that process don't necessarily, in some respects, might want to see it broaden, but not too far, I think. I read that Australia has some of the strictest eligibility requirements in the world. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So certainly when Victoria, so we had, sorry, I'm a Victorian, their laws, they had 68 safeguards implemented within their law. And again, to make sure that this is actually only available to a narrow bit, you can see that different states over time have, I guess, taken a different approach to their legislation and not necessarily implemented some of the safeguards that Victoria has. And I guess that it's always that really hard balance of having a safeguard, but still making wanting to make sure that this system is accessible. So if something is, if you're too heavy on the safeguard, will that actually preclude someone accessing? What are some of the access conversations happening for voluntary assisted dying? Is it regional areas that are most disadvantaged or? I mean, I think there is that certainly that regional, there is always going to that kind of regional divide that we see in all facets of healthcare. That's not necessarily, it's not isolated rather to the bad experience. But I guess the issue is meeting demand and having enough kind of eligible practitioners to actually participate in this process and finding a willing practitioner. And that can be particularly hard in regional towns, especially if they're being serviced, for instance, by one general practitioner. In Victoria, there is a requirement that the person is assessed by a specialist in that person's disease, and that can be particularly challenging in some of these regional states that might have those specialists. How does dementia fit into VAD legislation? So because there is a requirement in the states that a person needs to have decision-making capacity in order to access it and they need to have that throughout the process. So if the person loses decision-making capacity while they're being assessed throughout that process, they can no longer access voluntary assisted dying in Australia because it needs to be voluntary. And we don't have the provision of putting a directive in an advanced care directive thing that I want voluntaries to dying when I lose decision-making capacity. That's not available in Australia, so really kind of limited. So the dementia one is, is certainly one that is debated and it's a polarising issue because of that requirement to have decision-making capacity. You wrote an article in MJA late last year, it was published late last year, about the MBS challenges. Tell us a little bit about that. I guess something to put into context is that this is a quick process for those who are involved, particularly those who take on the coordinating practitioner role. 
because of the various steps that practitioners need to go through with the patient in order for them to be assessed as eligible as well as all the other kind of safeguarding requirements. So this takes a lot of time for practitioners. And currently under the MBS, um, there's not a specific billing code devoted to voluntary assisted dying and in fact it is precluded in terms of euthanasia can't attract Medicare benefits there's certainly services that provide counseling or assessment might attract benefits but under kind of general codes that general practitioners can claim but they are quite limited and they're not necessarily going to be reflective of the time spent by practitioners on this so that when you have a system which is really contingent on a medical practitioner to provide that service and because there is a dearth of providers, you know, there's only so much that in terms of the sustainability of a system, how an individual can provide this system without that kind of remuneration. So what happens then is you're really either relying on altruism from these practitioners and it takes a lot of their time. Some practitioners might elect to privately bill, but not all will be comfortable with that. So this kind of approach is detrimental, I think, to the sustainability of the system, particularly because it is now a lawful end-of-life choice in all of our states or will soon once the laws commence. And this does kind of deviate from other approaches. So, for instance, in New Zealand, they have a schedule that has particular, that reflects, they have a dedicated payment schedule rather that provides set amounts for different aspects of the process. But we don't have that in Australia. And so there's limited ability to claim remuneration outside of those kind of general consults. Um, and certainly practitioners can't claim for the administration if they're participating in practitioner administration, which is particularly problematic. So it appears that we've got now the laws to enable this process, but we don't have enough doctors skilled to deliver it and that there's not a remuneration scheme to support them to deliver it. So it's probably some more legislation that needs to happen around MBS to enable it. Yeah, certainly. It needs to be considered having specific billing codes, particularly because it is going to be a lawful choice in in most jurisdictions to recognise the effort that is involved. So certainly assisted dying is not the only end-of-life choice, but it's certainly a lawful one for eligible people. So that needs to be reflected in something like the MBS to ensure that the people who are dedicating themselves and who are electing to provide this lawful service are compensated and are done so adequately and they're not left to do it on their own accord outside their already busy schedules. Look, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time, your legal insights and the work that QUT is doing in this space. Thanks so much, Casey Haining. No worries. Thank you, Wendy. That was Casey Haining, Research Fellow in the Australian Centre for Health Law Research. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me today for Oncology Republic podcast. Next episode, we'll hear from GP Dr. David Ward and medical oncologist Dr. Cameron McLaren. They'll share their experience of what it's actually like assisting patients with voluntary assisted dying. You'll also hear about a support network and resources available for doctors who have questions about the process. See you then.